I was having a conversation with an atheist friend of mine, and we were talking about the definition of evil and the human condition. And we were just going back and forth. Uh, we always have good conversations, friendly conversations. It's, it's never an argument. Even when we disagree, it's never an argument. <laughs> um, so, and as a part of the discussion, he shared a video with me. And the video was uh, an hour-long dis- uh, discussion between s- two prominent atheists, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. You may have heard of Richard Dawkins. Sam Harris is... Uh, neuroscientist he studies the brain but the discussion was kind of about that very thing like does science have anything to say about the human condition morality and it was really good i found it very refreshing very very humanizing very kind and good but you know sam harris um was the i listened to sam harris first and he said something that really struck me he was talking about this idea of um, human experience and can we establish human morality just purely um, on, hu- on causality and the human experience alone, the, the material universe. Do we need religion to tell us what's good and bad or can we just kind of really go off of what, what we experience in the world? And he was talking about this idea of, of a bliss drug kind of He's like, we already have some of this to some degree, but but if we could create a drug that would cure negative emotion, basically, would we want it? And of course, like your hand might go up immediately, right? Yes, of course. There are already people on anti-anxiety, anti-depression drugs. He's a neuroscientist, right? So he understands these drugs work with uh, with the neurotransmitters in your brain. They trick your brain. Um, there's also reuptake inhibitors like that they keep the endorphins and certain chemicals in your brain going which make you feel good so uh, he's like would you take that of course who wouldn't right think brave new world and there was a a film called equilibrium where everybody's taking these feel-good drugs but he's like okay well what about what about this scenario you have a child that dies Would you want to take that drug then? Or would you want to grieve that child? Is it part of the human process to feel pain? Is that actually what makes us good? Part of what makes us good. And then he said said one more thing. He said, do we want as real and do we... I'm trying to remember the exact words he said. Do we want as real an experience of reality as we can. And that just really struck me. Like, he framed the idea of bliss in terms of avoiding reality or experiencing reality. Like, bliss, you being happy, would actually be avoiding reality. Like the death of a child or someone you really love. Would you really want to not have the love of someone be that significant like it comes with pain right like bliss in some ways bliss is it a good thing i was just profoundly struck by that idea and that's what i want to talk to you about today this is the construction monk podcast i'm your host jay randall ori 
I like to remind people I'm out on the trails. It's a chilly fall morning. We've all of a sudden we're into fall and it's like we've fallen deep <laughs> and it's cold. It's like 40 degrees. It's like 44. It is chilly. We've had a lot of cool mornings and cool evenings and warm days. I, I tell my kids, um, fall is like winter in the morning Summer in the afternoon, and then winter again in the evening. <laughs> it's the blending, right, between summer and winter. It's pretty true. But, um, yeah, so I'm on the trails, and you may hear birds. There's still some birds out. You may hear me walking, and sometimes there's the occasional jogger or dog walker out on the trails. Um, and I'm in some woods, a spot of woods near my house, about 20 acres or so. So, all right, let's get to it. What about empathy and bliss I want to talk about that idea and I'm a construction monk right so I want to talk about it also in terms of religion and God like I I think and I think we'll start there like what is Christianity about is it about heaven is it about bliss or is it about empathy and have you ever thought about that? Like, what's the point of your religion? Whatever religion you're in, even if it's, you know, uh, New Age or even if it's non-religion, you have a religion. If you're an atheist, you have a religion. And what I mean by that is you have a way of understanding what is good, what is moral, and what, what your life should be centered around, right? Like, we can all be religious about something, and we can all, we all define morality and what is good for the human experience. And that's what Sam Harris, he's an atheist, a very kind spiritual atheist, but he was like, hey, can we not define this? And he did. We all define evil, morality, and the human condition in one way or another. That's religion to me. But what is our religion about? What's your religion about? What's Christianity about? I would say, for the majority of Christians, their Christian religion is about heaven. Getting to heaven. Canceling out the negativity of sin, which keeps us from heaven. It's reaching towards bliss. Right? Uh... I'm going to pick on a certain strain of Christianity called the health and wealth gospel. What is the health and wealth gospel about? God wants to make you, God wants to make your life really, really good. He wants to bless you, right? He wants to give you money and possessions and cars and houses and everything good, right? Well, I don't disagree with the idea that God wants to give us everything good, but it's how and what that really means. Does it really mean the American dream and material wealth and acquirement? Well, no, I don't think so at all. And there's one resounding uh, protest to that idea, and that is Jesus. Jesus owned nothing. He had no money. Jesus was a failure in the health and wealth gospel paradigm. And Jesus said, I'm your example of how to live. So, bliss, what we could call heaven, is that the goal of Christianity? Getting to this good state of being. 
or is it empathy? Is it bliss or empathy? And what is empathy? Um, it's actually a Greek word, empathos, or empathia. I'm sorry, empathia. But it, it comes from the two words, em and pathos. The Greek word pathos means feelings or feeling, emotion. M means in. It literally means to be in feeling with someone. Empathy. It means you actually feel their feelings. You are connected and you are so absorbed in someone else's experience that you feel it with them. There's this great Christian scripture. I'm going to try and remember who said it. I'll just guess Paul because he wrote 70% of the New Testament. But it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And that is a great verse. That verse is about empathy. Paul's, Paul is saying in that verse, don't just live life for yourself and your condition and your goodness, but live life in the life of others, in feeling with others, empathy. And it can seem like empathy and bliss are juxtaposed at the end of these spectrums. Like, if we're about bliss, we're about our own experience in life and making our own experience super, super good. And um, let me... I, I looked up the definition of bliss. There's no, there's no word that, like... There's no Greek word to this, but I'm going to just jump over there. Yeah, I think... Um, I like this definition. Providing perfect happiness or great joy. Extreme happiness, full joy. So, forgive the uh, tapping sounds um, on my on my device. Uh, anyway, um, I, you know, it says perfect happiness or extreme happiness, bliss. But we can imagine that bliss and empathy are on the opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to our human experience. You know, we want to be joyful. And, there, and like, I wouldn't, I'm not criticizing that or saying that's bad. We want to be happy. But it's, I think it's more about how we establish our happiness. And I think even in Christianity, we can take an isolationary approach, an exclusionary approach. And Forgive me for be sounding critical, but I think Christianity has been ve- has a very exclusive um, model in a lot of its churches and traditions. Which, what I mean by that is like we're separating ourselves from everybody else. We're we're getting in our own little Christian bubble. We're creating our own little Christian bunker, and we're going to only read Christian books and listen to Christian music and talk to Christian people, and all those other people on the outside of our group. We're going to like distance ourselves, and I can point to some very extreme examples like the Amish, right, Mennonites. Um, but we all, I mean, I see it all the time. It's like. We need to stay away from those, you know, sinful, evil, other people who aren't like us. And everybody does this, you know. Uh, birds of a feather flock together. All that like-minded people, you know. We, we all tend to gravitate towards people that are more like us. Same economic level. Same values. Same dress code. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, it can get very superficial, but we all tend to want to be around people like us. Why? Uh, is it simply self-centered? In some ways it is, but it is also just kind of common. Like, we like to be around people we have things in common with. Why? Because we don't like dissidents. Dissidents and tension. In fact, um, when I talk about mindfulness, I will talk about the our very brains are wired away from dissidents, or they're wired to resolve dissidents. Our intellectual center, the way that we think it's a problem-solving function, it, it cannot sit with tension. So we don't want to be around people that bring tension all the time. You know, there's the um, anecdotal Thanksgiving dinner where you've got the whole family together and you've got, you know, diehard conservatives and extreme liberals, <laughs> right? And just all over the... Maybe you've got Christians and atheists or whatever. I mean, it's like the nail-biting, cringe-worthy, like, uh, scenario, right? People are just like, oh, I hope Uncle Fred doesn't bring up the presidential uh, race right now <laughs> or the upcoming elections in the Senate, I hope they don't bring up those the uh, our liberal liberal Annie doesn't bring up social issues or LGBTQ rights at the Thanksgiving dinner, right? We don't like tension. We like to be around people like us because it's comfortable, because we seek after bliss. We're wired for bliss, right? We want bliss. We want to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. Is there? Now, I don't think there is anything wrong with that. I'm not. This podcast is not to tell you that you shouldn't be happy or it's wrong to be happy. But my particular tradition, I'm a monk, my particular tradition, which is contemplation, probably the thing it talks about the most is suffering, the necessity of suffering. I did a podcast, it's a part of the Modern Contemplative podcast called The Essentialness of Suffering. Like how we need to embrace suffering. But that sounds counterintuitive. It sounds like crazy even. Who would want to embrace suffering? And I'm going to tell you why we have to embrace suffering. Even in the midst of our pursuit for bliss. Why? Because empathia is important. In feeling is important. We cannot attempt to move towards bliss by cutting ourselves off from reality. That's what I really liked about what Sam Harris said. He's like, do you want reality or do you want bliss? It's kind of what he was saying. And in our current world full of suffering, full of oppression, full of people hurting and people struggling, do we want the kind of bliss that separates us from those people in order to be happy that cuts us off from reality or is there a kind of bliss that also balances empathy that allows us to find a happiness a joy that isn't separate from the suffering in the world around us and our own suffering i don't know if i've talked about this in this particular podcast, but I have already in my uh, Modern Contemplative podcast. In fact, it was, I talked about it the most in the three-part series on the essentialness of suffering. But as a child, my dad, my father was abusive, 
physically somewhat. It was more for me emotional, mental. Uh, I am a sensitive person. I'm very empathic. Um, I, <laughs> you know, you can never compare to other people, but from my perspective, I am extremely empathic. It's just I'm very sensitive. And as a child, um, an abusive, angry father was just overwhelming for me. And it formed a lot of my identity as a child. And as I grew into adulthood, I don't know if you know this, but as your child identity kind of morphs into adulthood, it kind of changes. And things like the child mind and the adult mind are very different. Even from a physiological standpoint, just a, a biological standpoint, like the brain of a child is not fully formed and the amygdala and all those things. Like as you, you become an adult, then you just you kind of form a different mind, a different brain. And then your experiences as a child kind of translate in, differently into adulthood. So my trauma, my fearfulness, my anxiety as a child, my struggles as a child into adulthood became what I would call a hypervigilance. I was hyper vigilant about self-protection and my view of the world because of my childhood experiences with the the world was very scary, very dark, very volatile and people were more likely to hurt me than love me. So that was uh, like the center point of my identity, I would say, was this idea that I had to always protect myself. And that was true as a child at home. That was my home life. And like, if you don't know children, their whole identity is based on their parents, especially very, very young children. Like their their parents are their world. In fact, uh, a lot of studies have shown that they, they believe that babies don't even know the difference between themselves and their mother the first months of their lives there's just this super connectedness between kids and parents especially at the younger ages they their whole identity and world is based around their parents because like they can't survive without them so um but as a child my one of my parents was very volatile and so my whole idea of or my idea of the whole world was like was my dad Right as an adult, I didn't realize that I had formed that idea as a child, but it just it kind of got translated into this hyper anxiety about the world. Like I, I was always anxious. I had this background, foundational level of anxiety. I wasn't even aware because it was my norm, and I was constantly on the lookout: Is this person going to hurt me? Is that person? That was like my first stance towards people was. Okay, I have to protect myself. And like, if I find that they're kind, I may slowly begin to open the doors, but still very guarded. And I probably never got the door open more than a crack um, as a child or as an adult, sorry, or as a child. But uh, that experience formed me extremely so. And so one of the coping mechanisms out of that experience, if you, view, if you view the world as very dangerous, threatening, one of my coping mechanisms was just defensiveness, cutting myself off, closing myself in to cope, shutting myself off from people, which uh, basically numbing. And that's what Sam Harris was talking about. He's like, 
is bliss numbing? Is that what we, is that really true happiness? Is it numbing? Numbing to the world. Like, we can honestly say the world is a scary place. It is messed up. You know, I think even from the 80s till now, and you know, our concept of the world and the safe, the safeness of the world has changed tremendously. And maybe partly because we're so exposed to the whole world much more through social media, 24-7 news. But, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get curmudgeonly here and say the back in my day the, the world was a lot more safe i don't know if that's true or if we just our our perception has changed but either way we live in a scary world terrorists are blowing things up and killing people you know disease pandemics i mean it's no it, it's it's a scientific fact that anxiety and depression are on the rise suicide is on the rise more and more people are turning to bliss drugs, anti-depression, anti-anxiety, just to get by day to day. The world is full of anxiety. It's scary. Is numbing the path to bliss? Is that true bliss? Well, in my experience, I numbed extremely so. I had to, to survive. And that's like, there's no criticism there. I'm not, you know, not putting myself down. That's what I had to do just to get by. I was, because I am so sensitive, even more so. Like, I feel things very deeply, very intensely. But guess what that produced in me? <laughs> it didn't produce bliss. It produced background anxiety. I numbed myself. I shoved my, my um, hypervigilance way, way down, but it didn't go away. It just... I just threw it into the darkness. And when I was 42, I had a breakdown. The ways that I had coped with the world, the world as I saw it, scary, threatening, volatile, violent place. How I dealt with the world, how I coped, how I numbed myself to the world. I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. Like, your normal is your normal, right? It's relative, but... It led me to a breakdown at 42. Basically, the ways that I had coped with my hypervigilance and anxiety stopped working. I was At the time, I was working in a thrift store charity. I was managing the charity. I was taking on more and more. I had three kids, a wife. Um, there was just, it was like a perfect storm. But it culminated in this breakdown because the ways that I had coped with my anxiety just couldn't manage the level of anxiety that I had reached at that point in my life. And my breakdown uh, constituted a three-day panic attack. That was like the beginning, the big explosion in my life where it was like all the, if you can imagine it, like all the damn walls that were holding back these torrents and waters of anxiety in my life. Eventually, they just crumbled and just I was just deluged in anxiety. And that's what a panic attack is if you don't know, if you've never experienced it. It's like you're just swimming in the waters of fear and anxiety. And it's like your body is literally just in it. And, and you know, it's like fight or flight. Your body thinks that it's, it's in, your body thinks that it's under attack somewhere from something and so a panic um 
I just really, and I shut down. I, I basically laid in bed for a week. It was the week before Christmas. It was the worst time. <laughs> uh, but it was actually the beginning of a lot of healing for me. I mean, a lot of healing. <clears throat> my attempt to my attempt to numb myself from the reality of a scary world created a breakdown. It did not bring bliss. And it does not bring bliss to shut out the world, to shut out a scary, evil, dark, painful world does not bring bliss. That's not the way to bliss. There is a way to bliss, and I believe it is through empathy, not through numbing. And that sounds probably the most counterintuitive of anything you'll ever hear. The way to happiness is embracing people's suffering, embracing the suffering of the world. That's what I'm saying. Empathy. Does that sound sensible? But I believe this is the core of the Christian message, the message of Jesus. Right? If you're a Christian, you know the message. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross. That whosoever should believe in Jesus shall not die, but shall have everlasting life. Right? God so embraced the world. God so empathized with the world. You know, what's our image of God? This being far away removed on the throne of light, surrounded by beauty and love and peace and all the good things. And down here in the pit of the of despair of this chaotic and crazy world, we're suffering. And God's somewhere far away. That's, that's the image we often have of God. But God, through Jesus, says, no. You think I'm distant, and, and con- contemplation does not teach that image of God. That's the Zeus God. But the Christian, the gospel message, the New Testament message of Jesus is, no, I'm not far off. I'm down here. I'm coming down. I'm coming to show you that I'm here, not that I wasn't here before. I'm going to show up in the neighborhood. I'm going to get into the mire and muck and mess and pain and suffering of your experience. And I'm going to experience it too. And I'm going to experience it to the fullest in every way. I'm going to let myself experience. I'm here with you. I'm in it with you. I'm empathia. I'm empathos. I'm feeling it with you. And that's been the story of God all along. Uh, there's a couple of different scriptures that say, In God we move and breathe and have our being. And God holds all things together in Him and herself. Like, it's not a God that's far away, that's distant from our suffering, but God is like a God that's closer to our suffering than we could ever imagine. A God that's more empathic than we could ever imagine, that feels everything with us. Not a God who removes and numbs and isolates for the sake of His or her own perfect beauty, glory, peace, and joy, but a God who comes down and says, no, I am going to suffer with you. I'm in this with you. 
And like, do you know how different that picture of God is from the the Zeus God who's throwing lightning bolts down at people for sinning, who's punishing people, who's going to cast people into eternal fire? Two podcasts ago, I talked about a different perspective of heaven and hell, but this is a different perspective of God. God who suffers with us isn't pissed off because we're suffering and broken. Like, if God is truly in this with us, and God truly understands what we're going through, and he's not mad at us, he can't be. He's not punishing us for getting it wrong, doing it wrong. God, a God who is pure empathos understands what we're up against and what we struggle with and doesn't hold it against us. That's the God that I know, the God that really loves me and is in this with me. It's not the God of perfect bliss who's like, who's going to bring all the good people to his and her perfect bliss one day if they get it all right and stay faithful long enough and, and, and don't sin enough. You know, then God will, God in that removed place of bliss is going to bring the right and the good people to that bliss and all the other people can just go to hell. <laughs> that's, not, that's a very different image of God than this empathos God who feels with us and suffers with us. If there's anything that the cross displays about God, it's that God suffers the same fate with us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's another scripture. Christ in me and I in Christ. What's What's that say? What's that speak? about God and God's position with us. God, a God of empathy. And so I think this would be kind of the balance of empathy and bliss that, that it's not about removing us from suffering, but it's about bringing everyone along to bliss. I love that, that gospel story that Jesus tells this parable of the 99 sheep, right? He talks about a shepherd with sheep. He's got a hundred sheep. One of them wanders off. What does he do? He's got the the in-group, right? And there's one that's out. He says he leaves the 99 and he goes and finds that sheep and he brings them back. I think that story is about the heart of God to never leave a single person behind. God wants a hundred percent of everyone in into bliss. Why? Why? Because God's in it with us. God's not leaving us alone. And Jesus said, I'll never leave or forsake you. Even to the end of the world. There's no, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Um, you know, I'm, actually I don't know if it's 1 Corinthians, but Paul, Paul talks about that. Neither height nor depth, there's nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Like a loving God is an empathos God who's in it with us, who's feeling it with us, who's not distant and, and doesn't understand what we're going through. And so that kind of God is leading us, I believe leading us to ha- joy and happiness. But what, it, what does that say about God and about us is that you cannot establish your bliss and your happiness in separation from people. It's actually very dangerous to do that. So what you're really saying is, well, if I'm okay, that's good enough. But if you're not okay, no big deal. Empathy is about feeling 
what others are feeling, their pain, their suffering, their struggle. Not so we could be drawn down to their level, but so that we can help lift them up to ours. Do I have it good and you don't? If I feel your state, then I'm in it with you and I'm helping you and I'm walking with you. We're all walking together. Like, there's nothing greater, I think, than empathy to draw us together as a human race. Well, we cannot say, well, my nation's good, or my, my city is good, my family's good, and that's all that matters. Like, that is that bliss? But I, and honestly, it doesn't even work. If my family's good, but my neighborhood's falling apart, guess what? It's not gonna, I'm not going to be good for very long. There is no other way to bliss but through empathy. It's not getting rid of empathy and getting rid of a sensitivity to others, but it's actually cultivating a greater sensitivity, the kind of sensitivity God has for us in this world, which is, I'm going to feel it with you, everything. I'm going to embrace it all, the good, the bad, the suffering, the pain, the joy. I'm in all of it with you, not to just experience the bad with you, but to help you get from the bad to the good. Like, I don't think we can get from the bad to the good without empathy. And in fact, I would say a lack of empathy is what creates the bad. And I think that is also the gospel message. If sin is anything, it's exclusion instead of inclusion. It's saying, I'm going to work for my good and the good of my group, but I'm actually going to work for the bad of those other groups because they're not like me and so they're bad. Calling another group bad... Any system which allows us to disconnect from people, that's bad. It's disconnection. It's a lack of empathy that creates evil. That's what I'm saying. The human condition is created through apathy instead of empathy. Apathy is evil. Why? Because it's saying, well, my happiness, I'm going to establish my happiness in separation from you. And the world, the the evil, painful, broken world. If I can just create this ivory tower in opposition to the reality of the world. And that's happiness. But what happens when you look out your window? You can't avoid it. That's part of this. That's part of the realities. You can't avoid. You got to still look out your window. You're still in the world. Even if you create this isolationistic fortress against the world in order to produce your happiness. You can't. You really can't. you got to look out your window still and see people are dying. People are struggling. <clears throat> Apathy is a terrible form of bliss. <laughs> Do you understand that? It's horrible. It doesn't work. It's actually evil. Um, one of the definitions of evil, one of the illustrations that Jesus gives, he talks about Um, He says, even evil people know how to do good things to those who love them. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, only doing good for your group, for the people that, for the birds of your feather, (laughs) uh, only doing good to those who do good to you is evil. Why? Because it's, it's an exclusionary stance in the world. It's an apathetic stance towards everybody else except the people that you deem your group or your people. Can we not say the the cause of genocide and war is this delineation between my 
people and those people or us and them. Like the ability to cut people off from your idea of who should be included in your bliss group. You can just call it that, your bliss group. Like that's evil. Saying, I'm only going to do good to Christians. I'm only going to talk to Christians and listen to Christian music. But I'm going to just forget everybody else. If you're not in my group, then you can go to hell. I don't care. Do I? Should, do you think I care? You're suffering. You think I care? You're struggling. You're oppressed. You're poor. You're starving to death. You can't feed your children. You think I care? I can feed my children. I'm good. I got the big house on the hill. I'm good. Even though it overlooks that ghetto, that hood, that inner city project, I'm good. That's all that matters. I'm good. Does that sound good to you? (laughs) Does it sound good to me? That sounds like apathy, not empathy. And, And look, we all take empathy to a certain degree. We all take empathy to a certain extent. But the problem is we don't take it far enough. We all may have our cause and our calling and the people that we're trying to help and reach out to, right? It's not good enough just to help some. Let me rephrase that. It's not good enough to just love some. Like, we can only help so many. I get that. We all have our cause, and that's good. We can all only do so much. But I'm talking about a condition of the heart. Empathy is a stance. It's a way of viewing the world. It's a way of establishing your peace and joy. And to say... You know, we all need to come along together to this better place. It's not good enough if I have it good, or my family has it good, or my city has it good, or my nation has it good. In fact, even more so, if my nation is good at the cost of another nation's suffering, if I'm actually causing another group to suffer in order to establish my own good, like that's, to me, is the definition of evil. My bliss is at the cost of your suffering. Does that sound like true bliss? And so what I'm trying to say is God's view of bliss is not 99%, but 100% of everyone. And until that's true, we're going to have to suffer with people along the way. Not that we want to suffer, not that we think suffering is good, but it produces something good when we, we don't accept the reality that we can have it good, but others can't. And that can be our definition of good. Like that's why suffering is important, because it puts us in tune with a world that is still broken in order to participate in the healing of that world. So I think probably the most ironic message of the gospel is entering into the suffering of others in order to help bring healing. (laughs) But you know what that requires of you individually? You've got to enter into your own suffering to find healing as well. That's what happened with me and my breakdown. My breakdown was the end of the ways that I had participated in a separatist, numbing kind of bliss experiment. It failed utterly. And when it ended, I brought a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. But guess what? That suffering was already in me. It was already there. It was already going on. My bliss experiment, my numbing, didn't remove it. It just put it in the dark. 
which meant that I was suffering unaware. I had, I've had to the last five, these last five years, do a lot of work of discovering all the suffering that was already going on in me. Numbing has simply just cut me off from it. It didn't cut it off from me. (laughs) And that's what numbing does. Numbing for the sake of bliss doesn't cut us off from suffering. The suffering in ourselves or the suffering in the world. It doesn't resolve anything. It simply ignores it. It's apathy. It's the apathetic response to suffering. Oh, well. It's kind of like the Eeyore response, right? Uh, which isn't happiness. That's my point. It's not happiness. It's not true bliss. Like if we're not all moving along together towards greater peace and joy and thriving and happiness, it's not going to work. That's the point. You can't achieve bliss without empathy. You can't achieve bliss through apathy We have to be in feeling with others. Like the greater degree, uh, um, the greater our sensitivity, the greater we will achieve a peace that is truly good and truly lasting and truly big enough to be for everyone. Like, so it's like, it's actually the greater empathic you are, the better chance we all have finding peace and joy and happiness and bliss. The more we turn towards apathy and numbing ourselves to people's suffering, the less happy we will be. The more we ignore our own suffering, the less happy we'll be. It'll be a happiness that is in opposition to reality. There is no good drug that can truly create bliss. All it can do is really turn it off. Turn us off from seeing it. It doesn't make it go away. I mentioned a couple different uh, stories. Brave New World and Equilibrium. And Brave New World, it's been too long since I've read that, but Equilibrium is still kind of fresh in my mind, although it's been years since I've seen it. But if you've not seen the movie, it's very fascinating. But there's basically this society. They've been through a third world war. And the, all the leaders of the world have gotten together and said, we can't go through this again. We, we won't last. We've got to do something about the state of the world and the wars and the oppression. Their solution was a bliss drug. They decided that the problem with the world was all the negative emotion, anger, hate. So they decided the only way to, for the human race to survive was to create a bliss drug to numb everybody to their own emotions in order to create peace. They created a bliss drug. And so the beginning of the movie kind of, it it has that little brief fictional history. And and then it, it opens with this society that's completely, quote, happy. They're all on the bliss drug. There's no more war. There's no more possessions. They're all... It's a very androgynous kind of people, but they're supposedly they're happy. They're on this happy drug, right? They're very calm. They're like uh, what are they? they're like docile cows. You know, they're just But the problem is they're actually not happy. And there's a resistance going on. Because there's people that have realized not feeling anything 
is no better than feeling too much. Like just numbing ourselves to our emotions, that doesn't create happiness. Uh, Brene Brown and others have done a lot of research lately about this idea. Like when you numb to the negative, you numb the positive. If you numb yourself to anger and depression and anxiety, you numb yourself also to joy and happiness and laughter. Like we cannot numb ourselves to bliss. That is not bliss. And I found that out in my life. I'm more vibrantly joyful, excited, gleeful, happy than I've ever been. But let me tell you something else. The juxtaposition of that is I've never felt more in tune with other people's suffering than I have now. And yet I'm more happy. And that is the opposite of what we would think is true. Like I said, I'm very empathic. I feel other people's suffering. It's actually my spiritual gift. I tell people my spiritual gift is suffering. But I'm happy about it. <laughs> Doesn't that sound crazy? <clears throat> it's true. I, I can't explain it. it. Like It doesn't make sense. It's one of those upside-down truths. I've never been more sensitive to the suffering of others, but I've never been more at peace and more happy. <sighs> what I'm saying is that God, and this, this is how God is. This is God's stance in the world. God is perfect peace, joy, happiness, love, but also perfect empathy. Is that, is that not mind-boggling? God is perfectly at peace, calm, joyful, and yet God also perfectly embraces our suffering, our every experience, good and bad. How is that possible? Is there a strength that we can experience, have, and live out of, which brings a happiness that does not disconnect us from the suffering of the world? Does that sound farcical, fantastical, unbelievable? It does, actually. It does, because we live in opposition to that truth every day, most of us. But I can tell you that it is true. My journey these last five years has been rediscovering my empathy. Like, I was made to be hypersensitive to how other people feel. And I numbed myself to that. And that breakdown was God saying, I'm going to restore I'm going to bring you back to who I made you to be, a sensitive person. And it's going to feel very, very painful to go through, but it's going to bring you to a greater joy and peace. And it has. It's completely different than I would have expected. It's not at all what I thought happiness and bliss could be or would be. Let me um, end with this experience that I had try and wrap it up with this kind of this story so uh, after my breakdown I went to the doctor I got on anti-anxiety I started seeing a counselor I needed those drugs in the first couple months especially my body even physically was just so depleted I had been on that adrenaline rush for so long my cortisone levels were just, it was all my, my hormones and, and my body was just so out of whack. I could not have rebalanced physically, physiologically on my own. And God actually specifically told me to do that, which is a whole other story. But like, I am anti-drug. I'm just not a drug person. Uh, I'm very homeopathic. But 
God literally told me, go to the doctor and get on drugs. Like that's exactly what God said to me. So thank goodness, because I needed that. I didn't know I needed it, but so, um, after about three months, I, I got off the drugs. That was really hard. It's scary when your new equilibrium, you know, after that breakdown, it was tremendously devastating. And then the drugs kind of brought some semblance of peace into my life. But then as I went off the drugs, like right after that period, I had this very supernatural, unexplainable experience. I remember exactly where I was. I was standing at the sink doing dishes. And I was fretting in that moment about what my life would be like without those anti-anxiety meds. I was actually starting to feel anxious about going off of the anxiety meds, which is natural, right? That had, for me, had become my equilibrium. And in that moment, I just felt like this, I was starting to feel anxious and I felt like this strong force, like a hand, boom, pushed that anxiety, like almost like batting it away from me. And um, I just experienced just perfect peace. And <laughs> being, a, being as foolish as I am, I was like, what was that? I, and then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try to feel anxious again. Stupid. <laughs> Why would I, what? Why would I even do that? But I did. I was like, I couldn't feel anxious. It was amazing. I can't describe the feeling I had perfect peace I, God had supernaturally just covered over me with his and her peace and I couldn't feel anxious like that, the rest of that evening I remember like because you know when, when, you, when you've ever struggled with anxiety you're like, and for me being hypervigilant about all that stuff and being hypersensitive I was like is it still there Am I, I was like can I feel anxious right now I know it sounds crazy, but I was like, okay, no, no, I can't. Like, I just couldn't feel anxious. I couldn't feel fearful. I felt perfect peace. It was amazing. Eventually, I kind of relaxed, and I was like, oh, this is so good. This is what I've been wanting my whole life. Perfect peace. Can't feel anxious. It lasted two weeks. Two weeks. I felt, never felt better my whole life. I thought it was the answer to all my problems. Bliss. It was so blissful. It was like heaven. But after two weeks, boom, it was gone. That was more than disappointing. It was confusing. It was frustrating. I did not understand. Why had God given me this perfect peace, this perfect bliss, this perfect experience of Everything good, no anxiety, no fear. I felt so warm and held and still and peaceful. And then it was gone. It took me over a year to come back to the realization that that actually wasn't perfect peace. That was a numbing. But you know what I've realized five years from that experience? I'm there, but I'm there in a completely different way than I would expect. I live out of this 
not perfect peace. I won't, I won't call it perfect because that's, I don't think perfection is possible. But I live in a deep, a deep abiding peace and freedom from fear and anxiety like I've never experienced before. But guess what? I also live in a place where I can always, where I'm always feeling the anxiety and fear of others. Like that experience, that two-week experience of perfect, unpenetrable bliss was not true happiness because it cut me off from where everybody else was at. It was like a bliss drug. I couldn't feel anxiety or peace. What I really have grown into is knowing that I am in perfect peace. And when I experience anxiety, I know it's coming from outside of me. But it is super important for me to experience that because it puts me super in tune with other people's struggles. If you know me personally, you may have had the experience of me texting you or calling you and asking you if you're okay or if you're feeling this. Or I have uh, in tuneness with people that is uncanny. And it's not something in my control. I can't turn it on and off, thankfully, because I wouldn't really want, I probably would never turn it on. If I could choose to feel other people's pain, I probably wouldn't. God is in control, and God allows me to feel with people at times. It allows me to experience the suffering. I remember uh, one trip, I, I would travel, last three years I've traveled a lot to Houston for work, and one day we stayed right kind of in this in more downtown Houston. It was close to the Galleria Mall, if you know that. It's a high-rise apartments. And I was I mean like that I was there for like three days and I remember walking around. It was a weekend. I remember walking around the city and just feeling the spirit of the city. And it felt I felt a deep loneliness and isolation and sadness. I felt it so deeply. I was like walking through Houston crying because I felt this super intense loneliness and I knew I was feeling the spirit of that city I, it was so powerful when I got home I felt like writing a letter to, to like the 10 biggest churches in Houston and saying do you know what the, what the heart of your city is going through do you know the struggles of your city are you just isolated in your own little bliss bunker and then I thought well <laughs> they don't know Like, if I wrote those letters they'd be like who the heck is this some guy who thinks he f- came here and felt the spirit of the city. Crazy people. <laughs> Stop writing me letters. <laughs> I didn't write the letter, but it was very strong. I was able to feel the spirit of that place, the sadness of that place. And then that experience, that's when I, that was one of the experiences that, you know, God was teaching me like, how do you think, this is what God was teaching me and saying to me, how do you think I am in the world? How do you think I experience the world? This is how I experience the world. All of its sadness, all of its desperation, frustration, anger, all, and the joy, and the the sorrow, and the peace, and the happiness, all. You can't numb from one and not the other. I am all in this. I feel it all with you. And if you want to be like me in the world... You can't numb. You can't take the bliss drug. You can't live in the bliss bunker. Your Christianity, your religion can't be isolating you from the suffering of others. The story of the gospel, if it is anything, it is about God with us. Emmanuel, the very name of Jesus. God with us. 
not in some isolated way or separatist way, but with us in everything and calling us to be just the same. I believe all the pain and suffering of the world can be solved through a greater sensitivity in each of us, to each of us, to all of us. I believe empathy is the solution. And guess what? When we start to move with empathy, we will start to all move towards bliss. When we're all moving together towards, uh, towards that place. When we, when we won't accept that we could leave anyone behind in our attempt to get somewhere good. That will lead us all to bliss. Because we won't allow some other isolated group to continue suffering. And we'll understand that for anybody else to suffer, we will suffer too. So we have to suffer with each other. It's like not even a realistic choice. We need to experience reality as it truly is. It's not that we get drugged down, but that we help lift other people up. And the only way that is possible is if we don't get drugged down, if we live in this place that I've come to live in, where I can experience the suffering to a great degree. I could tell you stories of how much that suffering impacts me. I feel it viscerally, emotionally, mentally, in some pretty extreme ways, ways that almost make me want to fall on the floor. It's so overpowering. And yet, I live in a place of peace. I've experienced God's insurmountable peace, like something like that two weeks of bliss, but which also allows me to empathize. And so I can bring this great insurmountable peace and joy into people's suffering. And I'm not drugged down, but they're lifted up. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's how empathy leads to bliss. And why we cannot isolate to achieve our bliss, because that's not bliss at all. What about empathy and bliss? Empathos, empathia. Does that make sense? Do I sound crazy to you? I'm a crazy mystic, construction monk. Thanks for listening, guys. This has been the Construction Monk Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori, and I hope this has challenged you, encouraged you. I know it's a tough journey. It's kind of a, it's a reality check, you know? Don't go for the bliss drugs. I'm not saying it's wrong to be on anti-anxieties, by the way, so... But just disclaimer, if you guys want to check out more content, you can go to www.moderncontemplative.com and catch this podcast and many others or some blogs. You can check in with me personally, send me a note, an email. I really appreciate you listening. I love all of you very much. And I encourage all of you to get engaged, not in separating for the sake of happiness, but for getting involved in other people's struggles to help lift them up. But first, work it out in yourself. Work out your own suffering. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye.